you know, if everybody's on the same page of understanding what should be done outside of, you know, the training setting or what's going on, you know, on the field, it can create a good world for the athletes to where they're recovering properly and they're feeling energetic and ready to play every day. Hey, and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. I'm Jonathan Gellner, and thank you so much for tuning in. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Joseph Cancellari, the Director of Research and Development for 108 Performance. Joe and I discuss how to get our players moving better, data we should be tracking throughout the season, and he shares with us his process of overriding existing movement patterns that are suboptimal. A mutual friend of ours, Ryan Parker, said it best when he called him the Tony Stark of baseball. I know you're going to love this talk with Joseph Cancellari. Joseph Cancellari, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thanks for having me, John. Uh, i really uh, looking forward to what we're going to talk about, and I've been listening to your podcast now for a little while, and excited to be here. Oh, absolutely, and I'm excited to have you on. I'm, I'm so thankful that you are spending some time with us today. For our listeners who may not know who you are or what your story <laughs> is, can you talk to us about how you got involved in the game of baseball? Yeah, uh, I think uh, my story is a, it's a pretty interesting story. It's, uh, it's different than uh, most guys that are involved in the sport now. Being so, I actually never played baseball day in my life. So, love it. I guess I could start off by saying that you know, as a kid, I was involved in many sports. I uh, I played everything, you know, from hockey to soccer. Uh, I raced motocross my whole life. I still race motocross to this day. Uh, but baseball was just, you know, I played t-ball when I was a kid, and shortly thereafter, I uh, I got a dirt bike, and kind of that was my focus after that. So always was involved in sport. I loved it. Uh, and then that kind of just segued into my teenage years where, you know, I was becoming more interested in kind of the anatomy and physiology and sports medicine world, just because just being involved in sports, you know, working out and even fighting through some injuries, you know, you just, you kind of sometimes start to teach yourself how to get better, how to get stronger. And that's really where my interest grew in sports medicine world, I guess you could say. So after graduating high school, I, uh, I went to Stony Brook University. Uh, that's out in Long Island, New York, where I'm from. Uh, I received my degree in uh, communications. Uh, it's a four-year degree, bachelor's. And shortly after that, I was getting into, you know, training individuals and gyms and even at home in their personal gyms and personal spaces. And I, uh, I got a certification to be a personal trainer and you know it, it was uh it was a good time where I started learning more about the body anatomy physiology and you know I was starting to really get into it and I decided to you know if I wanted to better you know my career at that point and I always say that you know the more I learn the less I know so you know I, uh, I actually went to uh and applied to get my master's degree and I got accepted to uh, Columbia University in New York, and I was accepted in the Department of Biobehavioral Science, where I studied under uh, Dr. Carol Ewan Garber. And you know, the focus there was exercise physiology, brain and behavior, movement, motor learning, uh, and a really in-depth look at anatomy and physiology. So that was a great experience, and you know, that really elevated not only my educational level, but kind of just where I held myself and the standards I set for myself at that point. So 
shortly after I uh, graduated from Columbia, I I got a position at Sports Lab NYC as an exercise physiologist, where I was working for, with a lot of you know everyday everyday you know average Joes uh, who were either maybe just trying to get in shape, uh, recover from an injury, and I was actually able to start to work with more athletes there. Uh, a couple of professional guys were coming in every so often, and when I was at Sports Lab NYC, uh, we were in partnership with the John McEnroe Tennis Academy as well. So I got to work with a lot of youth tennis players, and these kids were, uh, I think it was the top 40 to 50 kids in the country, aging from, ranging, I should say, from ages of uh, around 8 to 17. So that was a really good experience. I got to work when, you know, group-based settings, individualized training, injury prevention, and uh, even injury rehabilitation. So uh, while I was at Sports Lab NYC, I actually got to meet a man who later became my mentor, uh, Dr. Keith Pine, who is a chiropractor by trade, but specializes in something called neuromuscular structural integration. So he really uses manual manipulation and uh, corrective exercise to treat patients. And his treatment concentrates on the neuromuscular structural integration that really resolves injuries and biomechanical discrepancies by addressing the problem in the body's kinetic chain system. And he was actually, at the time, a consultant for the Washington Nationals Baseball Organization. Okay. So, you know, I got to really, you know, work with him closely and learn a lot from him. He's a very intelligent man. And even to this day, I will call him and write him and email him for guidance and direction if I'm kind of scratching my head at something. But he had a very uh, innovative idea of bringing a proactive system of data collection to the Washington Nationals organization, and he asked me to be a part of it. So baseball in it's a very, I guess you would call it a original, you know, old-fashioned sport where, as far as sports medicine is concerned, it's more of a reactive sport where, you know, we've seen players get injured and we're just treating. Mm-hmm. And his idea was to be more proactive and proactive by really just collecting data on these guys, whether it was wellness reporting, looking at their energy, soreness, stress, or sleep levels, to in-game data, uh, looking at exit velocities, launch angles, velos, you know, et cetera. So I was hired by the Washington Nationals as my job title there was a corrective exercise specialist and data collection specialist. but my role was really a sports scientist, I guess you would call it, but the culmination of the two. I did everything from work in the strength room with the athletes to taking them out for stretch, conditioning. But my main, my main role there was to run the new data software system we had to track the athletes on a daily basis where we were looking at you know, all their wellness scores, like I just said, their energy, soreness, stress, and sleep, to you know, what they were doing on the field. And Basically, the idea was just to monitor them on a daily basis to see where they were at, Um, being, again, that proactive approach to looking at them, you know, trying to prevent the injuries before they even occurred or they were starting to occur. So I thought it was a very, uh, it was basically a a really big culture change to the sport of baseball, specifically that organization. And uh, 
it was a great experience. I, uh, I learned a lot. I met a lot of, uh, really smart, great people. And, uh, I'm lucky today to even still be in contact with some of them. And, um, shortly after the Washington nationals, I, uh, I got an opportunity to, uh, to work at 108 performance out here in California. And I'm currently, uh, the director of research and development. And I also am involved in two concussion companies as well. I'm on the research advisory board for Stop CTE and um, Concussion Legacy Foundation, where in those roles, where I am um, just an advisory board member aiding and trying to understand the pathology and uh, mechanisms behind uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, uh, neurodegenerative brain disease that... Uh, has been affecting a lot of you know football players so mm -hmm. that's my story and that's where i'm at today <laughs> well that's awesome i love your story and i love to hear perspectives from outside of baseball and, and like you said it's it's a very traditional sport and coming from outside of baseball i'm sure you had some interesting conversations because you were with the big league guys and they're looking at you like man this guy that <laughs> hadn't played since t-ball but talk to us about you know, what you guys were looking for, you said, you know, sleep and energy. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's something that I think a lot of us need to try and track. But what are some ways that we that you guys really used to do that? And then what were some other techniques or some other data that you tried to collect? Yeah, uh, you know, like you said, I think those are extremely important variables as far as an athlete is concerned. And we had many ways of doing it. We were fortunate enough to work with a, a software company, a medical software company called Apollo. And, you know, I worked specifically with them in helping design the system. So when they, we first, you know, partnered with them, uh, the, it was just, it was nothing. We sat them down and said, okay, this is what we would like to look at. And they've been involved in sport for a very long time. A lot of uh, the teams they work with are soccer clubs over in Europe. Who have been doing data collection on athletes for at least 20 to 25 years. So, you know, they had a really good idea of, you know, what the system should look like from a base setting and, you know, not making it too, too complex and not just collecting data just to collect data. You know, what you want, we wanted to do was collect a set of variables that were most relevant and most applicable to helping our athletes. So, you know, obviously, energy, soreness and stress and sleep were four things that they told us that we should start to look at. And it's actually really interesting to look at those things over an entire season because you kind of see the patterns that some of the athletes are falling into. Like, for example, sleep. Like, sleep is one of the most important things athletes can get. It's a time where our bodies are recovering and regenerating. And if we're not getting adequate sleep, that has a detrimental effect on your performance. So just by looking at sleep alone, we were able to do something as simple as change the time the bus came to pick us up or change the time we're stretching just to give them that extra hour or that extra time in between some of the activities to rest or even go take a cat nap. And that's just one example. You know, we also looked at in-game data. And if you track those things over a certain amount of time, you can see that, okay, why is your velo falling off, for an example? Um, is it something going on with the mechanics of how you're throwing the ball? Or is it something more uh, anatomical or even physiological? It really just gave us flags 
to try and go identify when we saw something that wasn't going correct. So I thought it was a really great way to be proactive. And, you know, I know as, you know, maybe some high school or even college teams don't have access to a system like that, but, you know, something as simple as I think Under Armour has an app and I'm sure, you know, Nike or any of the bigger companies have apps where you can track those things. And I would suggest, you know, you can do that as a, um, if you don't have access to a, you know, a full, you know, medical software system, which I understand a lot of people don't. Mm -hmm. And even, you know, creating an Excel sheet for your team and asking the athletes on a daily basis, Hey, let's fill these out. And then, you know, you can design the Excel sheet to, to, to print out or spread out a, a chart to say, okay, you just look at this line graph. You can see them. You can see that their sleep patterns are going up and down and maybe they're not getting adequate sleep. Maybe talk to them and educating the athletes on, you know, proper sleep, you know, and proper ways to stretch or what stress does to the body. And, you know, I think, you know, if everybody's on the same page of understanding what what should be done outside of, you know, the training setting or what's going on, you know, on the field, uh, it can create a good world for the athletes to where they're recovering properly and they're feeling energetic and ready to play every day. Did you guys just, you know, go up to the athletes and ask them a series of questions uh, every single day? Was it, was it daily? Was it weekly? And, you know, what were some of those questions, if you don't mind digging into those mm-hmm. a little bit? Oh, absolutely. Um, so it was everyday process, which we slowly integrated because I can definitely see how it's in a, it could be a little annoying when you have somebody coming up to you every day asking you all these questions. But we kept it simple. The wellness score was what is your energy level on a scale of one to seven? Uh, what is your soreness level on a scale of one to seven? And we actually were able to have a body chart where they could fill out the specific areas of soreness. Uh, what is your stress level on a scale of one to seven? And what is your sleep level on a scale of one to seven? Or how did you sleep? And what time did you go to bed? And what time did you wake up? Just very simple wellness report and. We were fortunate enough to put it, be putting it into a system that was backed by algorithms and would print out a report if you wanted it to, to show you, you know, your monthly, weekly, daily progress or just put it all out in front of you to see. So it was an everyday thing and, you know, it was a slow integration into the culture. I bet. And back to your Under Armour app. So we use a uh, an app called My Fitness. Uh, my fitness mm-hmm. pro and it's yeah. a free app that the listeners can use to, to track some of this stuff and so with the guys that have been complaining about uh, gaining weight so we down downloaded that and then we weigh in once a week and so we talk about you know proper protein carbohydrate and fat intake depending on where you're where you're going to be in it and it really charts all of that for you so those you know listening to this going man i don't i don't have the budget for an expensive algorithm that's something simple <laughs> That they can that they can do. I'm also working on an Excel spreadsheet or like a Google Doc that you can ask questions to. I mean, it, it's something simple that if it's important to you, uh, you can figure it out. And so those are two things that I've been working on. But let's talk about you know what you guys are doing at 108. I know I had uh, Eugene Bleeker on, and, and he was an amazing guest and shared a ton of information. So I'm I'm really interested to see how you guys work in conjunction with each other. So talk to us about, you know, he, he mentioned that you guys go through an extensive interview process for the athletes, 
But yes. say that the athlete gets accepted and okay. then comes in. So what's the first thing that you would do with said athlete? Yeah, so I have I have my own little like movement evaluation. So when an athlete is accepted, they go through two evaluation processes. They go meet with our strength and conditioning uh, guys, uh, BJ and Jason, who are both two former Cressy interns who are extremely knowledgeable and have a great process of evaluating what an athlete needs on a just individualized basis. And then I take them through my movement evaluation, which is a culmination of, I guess you could say, neurological functioning, proprioception, vestibular function, vision, and major movement patterns. So it's something that, you know, gives me a really good idea of where the athlete is when they walk through the door. So then I can gain knowledge and insight of how to work with them. So I can touch upon it a little more in detail if you'd like me to. Go ahead. Yeah. So I start off with something called a Romberg test. And it's an exam used to test the neurological functioning for balance. The exam is based on the premise that A person requires at least two of the three following senses to maintain balance while standing. Uh, One is proprioception, and that's the ability to know where one's body position is in space. Uh, Vestibular function, that's the ability to know where one's head position is in space. And vision, which uh, can be used to monitor and adjust for changes in body position. And it's a simple test that I like to use where the athlete balances on one leg and they cross their arms and you ask them to close their eyes. And you can see whether as soon as their eyes close, a lot of the times they lose that sense of where they are and they'll kind of be fighting to stay up. So it's a really interesting test to see if they're able to stay balanced and do so by using all three of those senses, the proprioception vestibular function, and vision. But when sometimes when you take that vision away, they're really fighting to maintain balance, which is testing their neurological functioning. And after that test, I use something called the Faduka test. And all it is, it's a stepping test, is in balance, and it's a vestibular test. So the test is used to determine if there's a vestibular system weakness on one side of your body. Now, A lot of these are neurological exams, and I am by no means a neurologist, but it's a really good sense, and you get a really good sense as a coach to see whether or not, or you can see where the athlete is and kind of how they have a sense of their body. So the Faduka test, they basically, again, cross their arms, close their eyes, and they march in place for 50 to 100 steps. Now, a lot of the times, the athletes will stay in, in place. But sometimes you get an individual that'll really uh, veer off from where they started. And that's just kind of, uh, it's not necessarily means that they have a vestibular system weakness. They might just have uh, their proprioception in their body communicating with their brain could just be not off, but it just, it, it shows you that, okay, we can work on that. And I like to do those two neurological functioning tests. And it, it, it tells me a lot of what's going on. Um, and then I do a little eye movement test just because I believe in, you know, the visual system leads our motor system. Mm-hmm. So I look at smooth pursuit, convergence, and your saccades. And then I look into major movement patterns, you know, squat, rotate, lunge, hip hinge, bend, 
stabilize, and gate. So that's my little evaluation. I really do it every athlete just to, you know, see what they need individually. Perfect. So you take them through that test. And Mm -hmm. so talk to us about, you know, what are the most common problems that you see with the kids that are coming in and and how would we fix those? From a movement's perspective, some of the more common problems I see is kind of a lack of control uh, of, you know, those major movement patterns, whether it's the squat, the push, pull, rotate, lunge, hip hinge, bend, or carry. You know, they've developed these compensatory patterns that, you know, they're, they're creating a compensatory pattern where they're completing the task, but it's done so in a wrong way. So I think, you know, the major movement pattern screening I use gives me a lot of feedback of whether we need to work on mobility, stability, or strength. Okay, so talk to us about, you know, from a team setting and take this and, you know, because I I work with a team, a lot of our listeners are high school, college coaches. So how can we translate, you know, what you do without being an expert? And I I mean that in the most nice way possible of, of, (laughs) I don't think we can, we can do it the way that you can, but how can we use some of the same principles that you're talking about within a team setting? Uh, I think that's a great question. I think that's a, uh, and it's a problem that a lot of coaches struggle with because they're dealing with a lot of kids at, at one time. And I think I could say it's important to assess the various needs within the group first okay. and then place those athletes into smaller groups for the latter part of the workout or practice. Um, and I think most teams have many of the same training needs and the general needs of the group become the foundation for the training program. And then you can segue into maybe after understanding the needs, each of these smaller groups can be assigned to a designated area for training, such as a certain weightlifting rack or a portion of the field. Uh, you know, Similar to starting a workout as a group, I think this keeps the training and coaching organized and easy for the coach. So, And even, you know, if you have more than one coach, it's great too, you know, in an experienced intern. You know, the differences in training groups can be even greater. Also, I think it's pretty important, and this has helped me create type of a coach sheet that has modifications to the main workout. Uh, I think it's pretty effective for making minor changes to a workout, and it's a great place for temporary changes, like if there's an injury or whatever the case may be, but... I think it provides an organized space for the coach to keep track of individual differences rather than the alternate of giving each individual athlete an individualized card and trying to remember who has what. Because when you have 25 to 30 kids, things can get a little discombobulated. So I think it's important to assess first the group as a whole and then maybe so make smaller groups that you can categorize individuals in especially in the big team setting, I think that's probably the easiest approach to uh, make things a little more smoother. Oh, absolutely. So talk to us about, you know, what are some of your core movement training uh, principles and what do you guys do really on a daily basis? Uh, I'm sure you, you, so you run them through this, uh, this assessment and then you put them into the smaller groups, but what are some of the things that we would see if we walked in and and saw you guys uh, moving around? Yeah. So, I guess I can say that, you know, my core principles, they stem from the concepts in the neurobiology of movement. Specifically, 
the neuromuscular structural integration and how it contributes to movement, fine motor skills, motor skill learning, and the mechanical principles uh, that govern all of our movements. Because I think movement is a, I look at movement as a language of our brain. And I think research has uh, delineated the, the precise nature and the neural correlates of the cognitive process that's, that contributes to our motor skills. So basically what I'm saying is, in order for the body to function properly, there must be a cohesiveness between the muscles, joints, and neuromuscular system. And the neuromuscular system includes all the muscles in the body and the nerves serving them. Every movement we make requires communication between the brain and the muscles and the nerves and the muscles. So them working together as a neuromuscular system makes your body move as you want it to. Because at the end of the day, the way I look at it is body movement is a fundamental and essential component of human life. So in our daily activities, most of what a human does in the interaction with the environment is associated with the generation of movement. And to further on that, in competitive sport, precise and coordinated body movement is critical for success. You know, I've seen a fundamental shift in the research field of human movement control. And I'd say probably that's occurred in maybe the last decade. And I think it's largely due to a growing understanding of the role that sensory information plays in neuroplasticity through the use of dependent mechanisms. And I think the most important source for that promotion of that task-specific neural development is argued to be proprioception. And although most of our body movements uh, and daily activities are automated, like walking or even reaching out to pick up a glass of water, conscious attention is required to learn complex skills in sport and exercise, such as you know using the foot to control a ball in soccer or performing a variety of arm movements and ice skating or swinging a bat at a ball coming at you 90 miles an hour. So learning movement skills means developing new patterns of movement by processing proprioceptive information appropriately. And when you do that, all these new neural pathways are developed, then they're redefined by repetition and transferred to the more fundamental regions of the brain from where they're executed with I think, less effort, and they're relayed much faster. So my goals toward functional training are to improve movement, and I believe respectable movement is based on the balance of mobility, stability, and strength. And this balance requires uh, an effective proprioceptive communication between the muscles and joints. And if there isn't a balance of the mobility, stability, and strength, then I've, I've seen movement patterns be, start to be dysfunctional. And I think that dysfunction can many times be related to the disruption in this neuromuscular system. So improving the system can create more movement. And if the ultimate goal is to improve movement patterns, uh, you can progress. You know, you can go from basic stretching, working on mobility, stability, and then strengthening, and then to patterns, which is very important. So it's important also to establish proper mobility of a joint and muscle prior to strengthening the movement and or pattern in order to create that effective uh, neuromuscular communication, you know. But I think, you know, a problem many professionals are faced with today is that 
active individuals that have lost their ability to do basic fundamental movements. And like I spoke about earlier, these problems have led to individuals creating compensations, okay. which sacrifice that mobility and stability in order to complete a task. So it's important that those compensatory patterns are addressed prior to focusing on strength and power. And, you know, another like concept I look also look, take into consideration is the major mechanical principles involved in efficient, uh, skilled movement. You know, everything from the application absorption of force, as well as action and reaction, linear and rotational velocities, uh, sequentially timed movements, stability, balance. So, you know, once you have a basic understanding of all these principles, I think it allows you to recognize some of the constraints that could potentially be holding an athlete back, which can help you understand of how to get them to move better. So that's really my core philosophies behind what I do and practice. I got it. And I think that that's why some of your underload and, and overload implements are becoming more popular now because one, it's a constraint <clears throat> that leads you to better movement patterns. And two, it, it does help with proprioception. So do you mind hitting on those a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, a lot of what, uh, well, basically, proprioception is your body's understanding of where you are in, t- in space. Mm-hmm. It's you understanding, you know, it's a subconscious movement or thought pattern. Uh, it's what keeps you upright when you're standing. It's what reaches out for that glass of water and squeezes it with that exact amount of force to pick up the glass. So if you think about all the coordinated movements in our everyday life that require proprioception, you can just understand or get a more or get a better idea of how much proprioception sport requires. We're moving in a fast-paced world in sport where you don't necessarily have that time to consciously say, "Okay, I'm going to move my body in this exact way so I can hit the ball." Right. The thing it happens too quick, but that sense and that communication and the way the brain relays the message to the muscles can be more efficient and you can train it in a way that you're seeing a better result when you're in those situations. So even though I do work in in a movement perspective, proprioception in my mind is a really big part of that. Well, and and what you're talking about with proprioception and really being able to relay that information fast is why it's so hard to get people to get out of their original movement patterns you know, that's why I like to use the overload and underload stuff because it's different. And then when they, when they pick up a baseball, hopefully some of those patterns have become more efficient based on what, what they were doing in the process. But I mean, that's, that's why it's easy to get frustrated at somebody trying to make a change because Mm -hmm. they're not doing what you want them to do. But it, like you, like you mentioned, it's their, it's their brain telling their muscles, Hey, this is what I've done for, you know, the last eight years of my life. It might not be the most efficient thing, but it really does take a whole, a really long time to try and unengrain those inefficient or, or lack of the most efficient mechanics that, that they have in the process. Absolutely. And, I, you know, it's definitely, it could be a process. And, you know, I think every individual has a different process. But the best part about the brain is it's, it's such a powerful thing that, you know, it has some, it's, the brain has something called plasticity. And, it's just the brain's ability to learn new anything, movement, language. But as you know, 
you hear a lot of times that, you know, when you're younger, it's easier, for example, to learn a new language or maybe pick up a new skill. And it's true. As you get older, your brain is hardwired to do the things you've always done and do it the way you've always done it. But the best part about the brain, like I just said, is it's extremely plastic, meaning it can learn new things. But as you get older, those new things being learned may take a little longer. But I think it's all about patience and challenging the brain is super important to create that plasticity. And you can do that and create more plasticity by adding variety into your training. You know, if you're not picking up a skill or if you're not able to do a new movement right away, don't keep practicing it because you're just you're just making repetition of a bad movement. Mm-hmm. Add some more variety. Do things outside of the box to create that plasticity so that movement pattern that you're trying to learn will get ingrained into your brain and take that neural pathway where you're not necessarily consciously having to think about it every time you do it. And that's the point of training. And like you said, the under and overloading, it's a great variable to add in because it creates that plasticity and it gives your body that ability to make adjustments when the time is needed. Sure. And and I know you know the answer to this question anyways, but how much variety and how many adjustments do you have to make during any type of sport or any type of movement that you're doing? Well, I think that's a great question. It's dependent on the movement, but it could be endless. I mean, sure. depending on, you know, depending on the movement, uh, you know, especially in a training setting where let's say you're trying to learn a, a new technique and it's just not clicking. Uh, it's maybe you're on day three and it's, it just, just won't happen. But that's because you're repetitiously doing it. You're, you keep telling your brain that this is okay to keep doing this pattern. So that's why I love variety, adding new movements and, you know, maybe doing something completely outside the box of not even related to what you're doing. But if you challenge the brain and you keep challenging it, I've seen in many cases that it leads to a better outcome of you learning that new movement. So it's very individualized, I should say, because you know you see kids pick up on things way quicker than others or a lot of times even you know the youth athletes that we work with, you know, their, their brains are like sponges. So you tell them something and you know they look at you and then little before you know it, they're doing it. And I've worked with 17, 18 year olds, even professionals that, you know, they just can't pick up on it just because of the developmental stages of the brain at that point. So it's a really interesting, uh, you know, avenue to take. It's exciting too, because, you know, as much as, you know, you're challenging them, I'm also challenging myself to say, okay, how am I going to get this individual to learn how to do this? And, you know, it, it I, I love that aspect of it and it definitely keeps me on my toes. Definitely challenges us, and I think that that's our our biggest challenge as coaches. So do you use a lot of constraint training, and do you use the use of external cues frequently? I do. I don't necessarily – I I really work specifically in the movement aspect of uh, where I'm at right now at 108. Um, The throwing trainers, you know, they're really good with, you know, cues and external and internal cues. Uh, When I'm working with an individual – I'm just looking of, you know, how are like in a more of a functional training aspect of, okay, let's work on your mobility, stability. And I really like to work on segmental strength. So a lot of my cues, I keep it simple. And, you know, I would lean more toward the external cue side. Uh, I think they have a better, it helps them and it's a, they have a better understanding, uh, especially when I ask them, you know, 
for example, internally rotate your leg and dorsiflex and plantar flexion, all those type of cues, you know, mm-hmm. some of them might not understand it. So external cues have, you know, have definitely helped me with uh, my application of what I do. So talk to us about, you know, we're in season right now. Is, sh- is there a difference between what we should be focusing on in the off season as far as a movement perspective goes versus the in season? And what are some easy ways we can incorporate more movement or at least movement training principles into our in-season uh, practice plans. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the in-season is a really busy time. But I think, you know, you can do movement training. Uh, you can do it every day. You know, as long as you're, you know, you're stretching and working on mobility and stability, in my mind, you're, you're working on movement there. You know, having a good routine, having a really good dynamic and static warm-up, and making it a, a part of your process of getting it ready every day. Uh, everybody has a different process. If that means, you know, getting to the field or to the gym 15 minutes earlier than everybody, uh, do so. And I know not every facility and or team has a, uh, a movement specialist, but I think, you know, like I said, if you're working on uh, your mobility and stability and stretching every day, you're working on movement, you know, you're trying to get your body to, to move better. And, you know, you're increasing the mobility and stability of your muscles and joints that in turn will overall create better movement. So I think it's an, you can do it every day. Uh, it doesn't have to be crazy long, but the process is, uh, is an important part. So yeah, I think that's a good way to incorporate it into every day. Oh, absolutely. Now, do you guys have any really like daily prescriptions for guys who come in on a daily basis that literally everybody does? So thinking more of like your dynamic warm up or, mm-hmm. or some exercises like that? Yeah. Um, so yeah, a lot of, you know, the athletes that come into us, you know, they have individualized programs. So I guess to, to go back to the question about working in a team-based setting, addressing the goals of the team and what their needs are as a group. Obviously everybody's individualized and they all have specific needs, but just addressing, you know, the needs as a group, you know, creating a dynamic and static warm up for the team, uh, I think is a great start and it's important, you know, uh, I think it's something a lot of athletes miss is getting a good dynamic and static warm up before they do anything. So, it's really important, and I think, you know, especially when you're on a big group uh, team setting, it's a little harder to individualize it, but if you address the goals as a group and kind of understand, you know, what some of the guys need more more of, I think designing a dynamic and static warm-up for the team based on that is a, is a good way to go about that. I love that, and and so talk to us about your own personal growth and your own personal learning. What's something mm-hmm. that you've uh, learned lately that you're really excited about? Ooh, I mean, I'm always trying to learn. I think, you know, what I've been getting into a lot lately is uh, I'm really just scratching the surface on this, but uh, it's called muscle selective tissue testing. It's a test that looks at a specific part of the joint or the soft tissue and it's really used to determine if the athlete has any pain. It's an uh, important part of the exam is, is it the pain before the movement, during the movement, or after uh, resistance given to the movement? So 
each bit of information, I think, helps identify where the problem is and more specifically how to treat it. So, you know, again, I'm just scratching the surface, but I think it's a really logical way to assess large joints like the shoulder, hip, and knee. And I think it can be used for other joints as well. So, for example, like, you know, through these passive um, ranges of motion, um, you can see, you know, if, if they're strong and pain-free, then the tissue's normal. If you're strong, if they're, they're strong and, but it's painful, it could be a sign of tendinitis or tendinosis. And if they're weak and painful, it could be a partial tear. And weak and pain-free, it could be a full tear. So, again, I'm just scratching the surface and learning more about it. Um, so I need to dive more into it. I just want to be able to assess the athletes better than I do now. So especially those that come in with, you know, a little bit of uh, pain or whatever it may be. Right. I think that's a goal that is great to have. I think that's something that we can all learn from as well. But from a movement perspective, and mm-hmm. you can and you can just throw out any of your favorite resources regarding anything, really. But what mm-hmm. what are some of your favorite resources that have shaped your coaching career or that you may have stumbled upon lately? I really, really enjoy um, a French osteopath named Guy Voyer. He is probably, he is, not probably, he is a pioneer in what he has um, created. It's something called Eldoa. And it's a French, uh, a French word. And I think the, uh, the, the translation to English is, is, this is a tongue twister. It's longitudinal osteoarticular decohabitation of the spine. So it's a postural self-normalization technique. Uh, designed for widening the space within a chosen articulation. So basically, he created stretches for every single one of our vertebrae. It's something I implement into my mobility work with my athletes. I don't use all the stretches because, quite frankly, I don't remember them all. There's so many. (laughs) But it's really, really, really helpful uh, as far as creating better posture and the self-normalizing techniques behind it are Basically, you know, it's opening up the joint space, allowing uh, synovial fluid to uh, return to the joints and uh, hydrate the disc. And he also created uh, a series of myofascial stretching. And I use those a lot, too, uh, to put, basically, we're putting tension into the fascia that encases the muscles. uh, And we're basically normalizing the length and function of the fascia chain. So... You know, when you do these stretches, you 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 can correct your structural imbalances and uh, release tension across the joints, uh, which you know I think ultimately can uh, reduce inflammation and pain. Uh, he's a great source. Uh, the man I mentioned earlier, Doctor Keith Pine, uh, who was a, the chiropractor by trade that uses osteopathic techniques. He is. He's a genius. He, uh, I turned to him for a lot of questions, and he's really been somebody that has put me in the direction I've gone as far as you know what my core beliefs and philosophies and methodologies are. And he's based in New York City, but he has a website. I think it's Dr. Keith Palm. Anybody in the New York area, I would say, if you have any type of issue or want to get stronger or whatever it is, he's he's a genius. And um, I really like reading. Uh, Scott Kelso, he is a neuroscientist, and he's got a couple books that I think have 
really uh, given me the basis for what I uh, what I do. Uh, I, there, uh, one of the books is called Dynamic Patterns: the the self organization of brain and behavior. And you know, he really uh, he really shows in that book that the human brain is fundamentally a pattern for forming dynamical systems. To, Basically saying that self-organization underlies the, the cooperative action of like the neurons that produce human behavior in all forms. But he's got a couple books out. Scott Kelso, a really smart guy and uh, really big with the brain and behavior, perception, action, and control, posture, learning new movement, attention, and just general cognition. Those are... A lot of the, uh, his books have, uh, are really, really good. So I would, anybody interested in this stuff, I would suggest you check him out. Definitely, and I will link those all down in the show notes. But one more, question, one more question before you go. So again, yes, going sir. back to this, uh, most of our listeners, team setting, whether it be high school or college, mm-hmm. uh, what is your favorite tool that you've bought that you bought for less than $100? Ooh, that's a good one. You know what's a good tool? It, it might seem odd, but I don't know if anybody's familiar with those blue Airx pads. I've done so much work on those things as far as proprioception, postural changes, and even some of the fun- functional movements I do with the athletes. I get a lot of out of those things. Um, single leg specifically, uh, working on you know that neurological functioning, and that's kind of, you know, my core principles behind what I do is neurological functioning. So, you know, that's, that's why that tool is so important to me. Um, and even working on proprioception, vestibular function and vision, I've gotten a really good bang for my buck on those. And, uh, even the, you know, the major movement patterns I spoke about earlier, uh, you can do a lot with those little blue pads and it's a simple little soft blue Airx pad, but I've actually used it quite a bit. That's awesome. I actually, I lied. I, I actually came up with this question a couple of weeks ago and I have loved the responses of it so far because we're all in it for, you know, the kids anyways. So what's something that you guys do that your kids just love? So that you, you announce, Hey, we're going to do this. And your kids just get so excited to hear that. Oh, um, I guess it's dependent on, uh, the age group. Sure. You know, uh, a lot of the younger kids love, uh, in my world, they love any of like the reaction drills I do with them. I like to work on a little reaction uh, drills where, for example, they they stand facing a wall, and I actually use three to four different color balls. And I say, before every throw, I'll say, okay, you have to catch the red and yellow ball with your right, and green and blue, blue with your left, for example. And, you know, not only are we challenging their, you know, their reaction time, but they're having to consciously think about what ball to catch with hand. And through the the exercise, I constantly keep changing what arm they have to use to catch which color ball. <laughs> and for whatever reason, they, they love it. They go crazy over it. We've created a game where there's a point system. I didn't even create it. They did. And for, for whatever reason, the loser always ends up doing push-ups is always the, uh, <laughs> is the, the loser's job to do that. So uh yeah it's been fun um they love i love creating those like games that 
you know, they challenge the mind, but they're also, you know, we're working on something else, we're working on reaction time. So just keeping it fun, you know, for those guys is uh, it's an important part. Well, fantastic. And Joseph, thank you again for hopping on the show and spreading just your infinite wisdom as far as movement goes and, and just really anything in life. And so thank you so much uh, for joining us. But where can our listeners find you online in case they want to get in touch and ask you some questions? Uh, yeah. Uh, first off, thanks for having me. Uh, I really appreciate you having me on. I listen to your show all the time. And anybody that doesn't, they should. You, uh, That's you're right. really knowledgeable. You have great guests on. And but yeah, so you can find me. My uh, my Instagram is Joe underscore Cancellari, 108PA.com. There's a 108 Performance Instagram. Uh, there's a 108 R&D Instagram. Um, and then there's also 108 Hitting and Throwing Instagram. And we're also on Twitter as well. So uh, probably the best way to get in contact with me, though, is my personal Instagram, the Joe underscore Cancellari. So perfect uh, yeah all right and now uh you've got an open mic is there anything else that you'd like to tell our listeners before you go yeah if you're uh if you're in the southern california area feel free to stop by we have two facilities uh one in riverside and one in tustin um and if you have any questions about uh what we do or our program you can go to 108pa.com uh, contact me on my instagram or any of the other, you know, related 108 Instagrams. And, uh, yeah, stop by. You know, we'd love to have you. And, uh, again, thanks for having me on the show, John. Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. If you'd like to view the show notes or get in touch with me, you can find all of that information on our website at aotcpodcast.com or on the Texas High School Baseball Coaches Association app. Help us out by subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show. But before you go, here's a quick word from our friends at Keeper of the Game. Hi, this is Ben Hochter, Keeper of the Game's Youth Ambassador and the Student Director of Baseball Operations at Reedy High School. Keeper of the Game provides great baseball experiences for kids with special needs and disabilities. Keeper also creates service opportunities for teams like Reedy Baseball. Check us out at KeeperOfTheGame.org, Keeper of the Game on Facebook and Instagram. Our Twitter handle is at BaseballKeepers via Keeper of the Game.